We're spending some time for a few weeks in September considering what does it mean to be mature? What does a mature Christian look like? And when I read that letter, I get the impression that she is certainly headed in the right direction, if not there already. And I don't mean to say that she's arrived. I don't believe that any more than anybody else has. But she has grasped what it means to be a mature Christian. In contrast with that, the people of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, especially in chapter 11 that we're going to look at today, did not know what it meant to be mature. They were just the opposite of Helen Steele and of all the other fine missionaries that I know. And especially around the Lord's table, they were extremely immature. And we want to learn from their example. We want to learn in a sort of an opposite kind of way. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, the ones I'm about to give, I do not praise you. Earlier he had praised them for something. Now he says, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another one is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Boy, he didn't look at our church, did he, there when he said that? I don't know, many sleep? No, it's probably talking about something else other than sleeping in church, isn't it? For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest when you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. The sad reality of the Corinthian church is this, first of all, that they were devastating the body of Christ. Now, the word body of Christ refers to two things in Scripture, and it refers to two things in this passage, and it's used somewhat interchangeably. The body of Christ obviously, in part, refers to his physical body, and when it says, if you partake unworthily, you are guilty of the body and blood of our Lord, it's talking about just that, the body of Christ. 
There are times, though, when the Scripture uses the phrase body of Christ to mean all believers who are part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we are the body. The church is a synonym for the word the body of Christ. And so when I use that today, I'm going to be using it in both ways. And the first way I've just put up on the screen is referring to the Christians, the church, when they gather. We could call this the local representation or a local representation of the body of Christ. And as such, we are a body of believers. We're not just individual members of a, of a, uh, of a religious organization. We are connected to each other through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit puts us into the body of Christ and we're all connected. We are a body. The church is not the building. The church is the people. And these people, when they came together, were devastating the body of believers. Look again at verse 17. This is, this is one, of the, one of the awfulest reputations and one of the most challenging scriptures for the church in the New Testament. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. Let me put it in a, in a medical way. When you come together, it's toxic. You know what toxic is, right? Stuff that comes out of a nuclear reactor is toxic. Stay away. The stuff that gets spilled into the river once in a while from a tanker truck that overturns is toxic. Don't drink the water. Do you know what Paul said to the Corinthian church by God's inspiration? When you get together like this for church, it's toxic. People are going out worse than they came in. Boy, I hope that's never said about our church. That's, that's just awful. People might leave our church unbelieving because they choose not to receive the truth of God that has been clearly communicated. But if they leave coming in as a, they come in as a sincere seeker, an unbeliever who really wants to know God, or they come in as a Christian who really wants to be discipled, and when they go out, their life is more sinful than when it came in. If that's the, the case, then we've got some bad cancer that we've got to deal with. I don't believe that's the case, and I'm very thankful for it. But that's what, that was the description of the Corinthian church. Why is that? It's because they were dividing the body of believers. Turn back with me a few pages in Corinthians to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, our theme this month is thinking about maturity. And look what he says right here in verse 1. I, brethren... I could not speak to you as to spiritual people or as to mature, spiritually mature people, but I had to talk to you as a worldly Christian, as an immature, a baby in Christ. So he's going to tell us here what is one of the differences between a baby Christian or a worldly person and a spiritually mature person. He said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. For you are still worldly or carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, or translate that you're behaving like unsaved people do. 
For when one says, I am of Paul, and I am, another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe? And the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward. The root sin of the Corinthian church that, that he talks about in chapter 2 and 3, and then he has to bring it up again at several points, is pride. I'm better than you because my spiritual teacher was Apollos. No, no, you're all messed up. My spiritual teacher was Paul. No, no, and some of them even said, my spiritual teacher was Jesus himself. And they, because of that, they divided. And they had their little groups. And they talked bad about the other people. And they didn't care for the other people. And that is nothing more than pride. What the Apostle Paul says, he says, look, I scattered some seed. That means he preached the gospel. And Apollos came along and, and gave witness to it and explained it with God's word. He says, but it's God himself, the Holy Spirit, who comes in and empowers that. There's no room for pride in any of the ministry. There's no room to say, I built this. This is mine. Sometimes in churches we get to talking about a certain room or a certain ministry and Oh, that's brother so-and-so's, or oh, that's sister so-and-so. Better be careful when we walk around that. Friends, that's nothing more than pride. Who built that ministry? Was it you? Because if it was you, it wasn't of God. But if God built it, why would you take pride in it and say, oh, look at this great thing that I have done. Nobody else can touch it. Nobody else can do better. That's pride. It's spiritual pride. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? He's talking about the Lord's Supper now. Communion means to share together. Communion isn't just a word we, we put onto this like a title for what we do. It means sharing and fellowshipping. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. He says we're all one. There's no, there's no place for dividing. There's no place for pride and arrogance. We are all part of the body of Christ. Back in chapter 11, we go on now to see that not only were they devastating and dividing they were desecrating the body of christ now i'm talking about jesus christ himself look at verse 20 of first corinthians 11 therefore when you come together in one place it is not to eat the lord's supper and then down in verse 27 therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks of this cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. When he says there in verse 20, when you come, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, now get this in mind. They came to a church service. They had all of this prepared. And he said, you're not observing the Lord's Supper. 
you're here, you're eating the bread, you're drinking the juice, but you are not remembering Jesus. If you participate in this in something other than a proper manner, there is no worship. God is not worshiped by you taking the bread and eating it, taking the drink and juice, and that, okay, boy, I did that religious thing. I love coming once a month when they do that. That just makes me feel so good. That's not what God wants. And if that's how you partake of this, you are desecrating the body of Christ. The word desecration is what we use when something very special, uh, very unique, like when somebody goes into a graveyard and tips over the stones or sprays swastikas on a Jewish headstone. We say that it has been desecrated. God says if you don't understand the Lord's body, Jesus Christ, and if you partake of this in an unworthy manner... You are desecrating it. John MacArthur wrote this in his commentary, to trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, (coughs) but to dishonor the country it represents. To come unworthily to communion does not simply dishonor the ceremony, it dishonors the one in whose honor it is celebrated. When we come to this table, we have a holy responsibility to make sure that our heart attitude, our heart attitude matches our physical action. That's when there's true worship. Worship does involve physical action. I mean, we sing, we use our voice, we use our mind, we pray, we, we may use our voice or our mind for that if we're, if we're praying along with the leader, we read scripture. Uh, you know, there are, there are physical elements in worship. But it's only worship if our heart and our body are in sync. Remember what Jesus told to the Pharisees about prayer? He said, or what he told to his disciples about prayer, and he said the, the pagans, the people who don't really know God, they think they're going to be heard for what? They're much speaking. I, if I just say the prayer enough times, God pretty soon will go, well, that's pretty good. I'm going to answer your prayer. Well, we all know that's not how God answers prayer, but that's not how God receives worship either. As though the majority, you know, if you show up in church 10 times, well, God goes, hey, that's pretty good. Or if you do this ritual, our heart and our body have to be synchronized. They, these Corinthians were desecrating the body of Christ, and they were also despising the body of Christ, the body of believers. Look at verse 21. This is really amazing. Verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 11. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now, there's something going on here that you may not be aware of that intertwined for them with the Lord's Supper. And it's called in the book of Jude a love feast. And we know from church history that there was a practice that was a carryover from the days of the Passover in the Old Testament. See, in the old, in the, when Jesus had the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper, they had a whole meal going on, and then at the end of it, he did this special ceremony that became the Lord's Supper. 
And so the Christian church, when they first started gathering, they said, well, we're not supposed to observe the Passover anymore. That's, that's fulfilled. But we're going to have a big meal. We're going to come together and have a feast. We all love each other, and we're going to celebrate the love of Christ that he's put in our hearts for one another. So they call it the love feast. It would be similar to having a potluck dinner like we have today. And then at the end of that, they would observe the Lord's Supper. Now look what was going on here. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one person is hungry and another one drunk. Do you understand what was happening? They came in with their food for the potluck, but they didn't put it on the sharing table. They went to their own little round table and put their food on it. And there were people, poor people, maybe slaves who'd gotten saved, who came to church, and they're standing over there, and these people are going for it, getting drunk. I don't know if that just means alcoholically drunk or if it means they were you know, just feasting. Blah, you know how you feel when you're done with that Thanksgiving meal. And these people over there were hungry. And it didn't bother them to do that. Now, <laughs> that's cold. That's really cold. And then after that, they said... Jesus, I'm eating this bread and drinking this juice to remember you. And that's why he says in verse 20, this is not eating the Lord's Supper because we are all part of the body of Christ. And if all you care for the body is to just come together so you can have a nice religious gathering, but your brother is standing over there hungry and you won't feed him, you're not worshiping Jesus. They were despising the body of Christ. The Corinthians had lost this Christian fellowship and had resorted to class distinction. You see, in their society, there, were, you know, there was a slave class and then there was the, the slave owner class. And they were used to sitting down at a meal in their home while the slaves waited on them. And then the slaves would eat later or take care of themselves. So they came to church and they thought, Oh, he's a slave. What's it matter? And no doubt they needed to learn something, which was, in Christ, things are different. The, foot is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in Christ, and we need to treat each other in that way. You are either laying down your own selfish interests and loving your fellow Christians, or you are despising the body of Christ. Ooh, that's a harsh word, isn't it? But look what he says, verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? That's another way to say the body of Christ, the body of believers. You're despising the body. What did Christ say to the disciples at that last Passover? They're having the Passover, then he institutes the Lord's Supper, but in that mix of things, what did he do? He got down and washed their feet. And he said, you call me the Lord, and I am. But I got down and washed your feet. And so if I'm the Lord and I washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. 
These people here went right over their head. Missed it completely. And if we don't wash one another's feet, then we are despising the body of Christ. He goes on from indicting their wickedness to give them a simple reminder of the truth that they should have been following. And the thing that's fascinating to me is this was a known truth. Look at this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also, let me put the tense more clearly, that which I have already delivered to you. See, they were already practicing the Lord's Supper. And the only way they could have been doing that is to know about it from Paul or one of the other apostles. Here we understand that Paul taught them about this. So this is a known truth. He said, I receive from the Lord that which I also have delivered to you previously, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is going to be given, it should not be broken, is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This was a known truth. Now, here's what what I want to ask. How could they have gotten so far away from this simple truth? I mean, you know, we say today, it's not rocket science. Even just on a just on a human mental level, we should be able to say, Jesus said very simply, eat this and drink this and remember me. Think about me. How could they have gotten so far away from this? Well, I would take a clue from where they got to. And I would say this. The pride of sinful behavior creates not only a wrong path that leads us away from the truth, but it creates a stubborn desire to prove that our sin is somehow acceptable. No, this is right. This is okay. I don't have to change. And we start arguing to defend what we're doing when the simple truth is we're just not washing feet. We're not laying down our life for the brothers. Somehow that pride took them all the way out to where they were eating and saying, guess he didn't budget his money well enough. That's, that's awful. This was not only a, a known truth, this was a personal truth. And I think that, that's why Paul is so upset with them. Think about this with me, would you? Jesus himself asked the apostles at that first supper. He asked them, and by extension, all Christians who would come after them, he asked us to do something for him. Now now try to get the bigger picture here. At that last Passover and then the initiation of the Lord's Supper, Jesus knew he was about to enter into the 18 or so hardest hours of his human existence. He knew what was coming. He goes later into the garden and prays and says, Oh, God, if there's some other way you can, you can accomplish this, don't, you know, don't make me go through this. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knew what was coming. He knew how hard it would be. He knew he would be separated from God the Father while God poured out his wrath on sin onto Jesus. He knew he was going to heaven to prepare a place for each and every Christian. Have you ever known something that you wanted wanted to tell somebody, but you couldn't tell them? It was really good. I got something like that right now. I can't tell you what it is, but it's really good. Probably not as good for you as it is for me, but it's really cool. You know, I just really want to, boy, oh, it's really good, it's really good, you know. Jesus didn't tell them about all the glories of heaven, did he? But he knew he was going there. Can you imagine how many times he wanted to say, if you just knew what is coming for you, it is so great. But that's going on in his mind. He knew he would be in heaven working to protect us from the attacks of Satan. He said a little bit of this to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I've talked to God about it, and that's not going to happen. But can you imagine him looking down through the years and then looking at his little crowd of apostles going, man, you guys cannot believe how hard I'm going to work for you in heaven. Satan is going to come and accuse you, and I'm going to be right there saying, no, God, they're, they're covered by the blood, you know, and, and all of this. He knew that someday he would be coming back and taking us all to be with him and relieving us from all this burden of earthly life. He knew all of that. And in light of that, he asked one simple thing. Do this to remember me. And so when the Corinthians come to this feast and and all they're thinking about is themselves and their own bellies and they don't even care about the other Christians, Paul's going... Don't you remember what this is about? The challenge is there for us today too, Christians. Do you remember what this is about? This is about the body of Christ and what he's done for us and what he's done in all of us. And and he asks us to live like him. He goes on from this reminder to give them a very serious warning. And perhaps this warning scripture is as famous as the, as the uh, simple scripture that goes with it. The thing that I'm struck with, though, at first is that this had to have been an unexpected confrontation. Look at verse 27, please. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In church history, such folks as uh, some of the Puritans would not, let a, would not let church members partake of this supper unless they came to a preparation meeting first. And that would, for instance, be on a Wednesday night, and they would examine your life for you. Let's see how you've been doing. Well, I saw you over there. You spoke kind of harshly to your wife. I'm sorry, not this month. You have to wait till next month. And they examined them and they prepared them and they scrubbed them up and got them ready for the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, that's not what the Scripture says, is it? It says, let a man examine himself. But when I think of the Corinthians, think of now what the, sin, the particular sin that, that, that Paul is all over them about. He's not talking about 
You've been living in fornication and sexual sin. He's not talking about you've been murdering and so on. I know there were some saved folks like that in the church, but none of those big sins were going on. You know what the big sin was? They were not loving their fellow Christian. And so when Paul says to them, if you don't love your fellow Christian, you're not fit to take this. Do you think they might have been a little bit shocked? Are you kidding me? That's what all this big deal is about? I didn't let brother so-and-so sit down and have food with me, and now you are... uh, uh, uh. Yeah. You know what that means to me? That means this is a big deal to God. You might think these other things are the big sins, and this is a small one, but God doesn't think that way. I think they were surprised by this confrontation. This also tells me that to God, there aren't any little sins. Do you know what a little sin is? It's the sin we like. (laughs) And it's different for every single person. It's the sin we want to tolerate. Well, this is not so bad. Apparently, God really thinks it's bad if we don't genuinely and sincerely love one another. Look what he says. If you... Do not examine yourself if you do not get yourself worthy. And by the way, let me just say what it means to be worthy. I'm not primarily preaching about that today. It means, first of all, to have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And second of all, it very simply means that you have not allowed any sin to be unconfessed and stay in your heart while you're partaking of this. You may be sitting here today and may be convicted about certain things in regard to how you've treated other people in the body of Christ. Does that mean you should not partake of this? No, it means you should confess to God your sin and say, God, you know, I've done wrong here and there's some things I need to do. And then you are ready and then you need to follow through and, and, and go and make those uh, apologies, uh, make those issues right, whatever it is. In fact, if I really understand what the scripture says and uh, I'm not going to do this because I've heard of it a few times and It shocks people so much that they don't recover from it. But you know what he actually says there? He says, therefore, wait for one another. You know what he's saying? He's saying, just come to this table and say, okay, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If there's anything that needs to get taken care of, go take care of it now. We'll be waiting for for you here when you get back. Ooh. Is there anybody in the body of Christ that I need to make things right with before I partake of this? That's what he says to them. He goes on to warn them, though, if they don't make things right, if they don't get right with God and man, what's going to happen? Listen to what he says. He who eats and drinks, verse 29, in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You, You make light of the Lord's body. For this reason... Because of unworthy participation, many are weak and sick and sleep. And it's not talking about falling asleep in church. It's talking about dying. That's just one of the sternest warnings there is in the Scripture. There are several like it, and I just want to uh, touch on them to help you understand this. 1 John 5.16 says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin that leads to death. 
And this is talking about Christian brothers. There is sin that causes Christians to die. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, such a sinning brother, and it talks about his particular sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow, when was the last time you heard of a church condemning someone to Satan's domain so that Satan might take their physical life? Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. It's talking about our future reward with God. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, or the acts of their life, if they are burned up, he will suffer a loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through Fire. This sermon's pretty fun so far, isn't it? Do you know what the, what the scary truth of, of that is? God takes sin so seriously in the believer, and in particular in regard to the Lord's Supper. That if we say, well, you know, I know I'm not right with this person or that person. I know I've got this sin, but, but you know, I just love having the Lord's Supper so much. I'm just going to take it. God says, if he chooses, he doesn't say that this happens to every single person every single time. He says, if he chooses, you may get sick or weak or even die. I don't believe I've ever seen anybody die as a result of this. I did have an older pastor who I respect very much say, I hate to hear the phone ring on Monday morning after communion and find out who's in the hospital. Now, I'm not trying to be sensational. I'm not trying to be holier than thou, like, well, I never go to the hospital on Monday morning. No, no, no. What did God write? This is serious, serious business. But you know what the most serious thing is? And I hope you get this. Is all of this is about loving your fellow Christians. It's not just about the Lord's Supper. It's that if you don't love your fellow Christians and and make things right with them, when you come here, you're not prepared for this. God is not honored by your worship if you're walked isn't right. Let me ask you a summary question. Before I ask that one, I want to ask one other one. Are you actively, actively, not passively, are you actively loving the body of Christ? And I mean by that the believer's Actively loving. You know what it means to passively love the body of Christ? That means you come to church and you sit in your pew and when people shake your hand, you shake their hand and when they smile, you smile and you think, well, that's a nice person. And when it's over, you get up and walk out. And you'd say, that's a friendly church and I like going there and that's good as far as it goes. 
But I think what God is saying is, will you actively love the body of Christ? Will you step beyond yourself? Will you put your own concerns on the back burner and pick up the concerns of other people? That's what Philippians 2 is all about. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He put his own interest aside, came to earth, and sacrificed his very life. And we're supposed to be like that. Now let me make this very practical. How is a relationship developed and deepened in the body of Christ? How do you actively love the body of Christ? This is, this is really profound. Spend time together. <laughs> Can you have a relationship with somebody to whom you don't talk or who you don't visit or you don't spend time with? No. No. It just doesn't happen. Here's a radical thought. Boy, and and I won't inspect this, but here's a challenge. Sit in a different pew once in a while. Ooh. When I... This is, this is the beginning of our sixth year together. We, I have been here for five years already, if you can believe that. And if you've endured that, the Lord bless you. Um, the guy who had to, had to endure me leaving Tukwila is Tim and Angela. Raise your hands there. Tim's the chairman of the board, or was when I left Tukwila down there. And on, before I actually got here, remember some of you that were here, I came up on a couple of Sunday nights and, and spoke some, some words that I thought needed to be said. And, and I said, we're all going to sit on one side together. And I was shushing people over as they came in. Come on, we're all going to sit together. And one dear saint, who I won't even point in the direction of that pew, said, I've been sitting in this pew for 12 years, you know. And I said, that's okay. Come on, we're all going to sit together. Now, you know, that's a very small thing. But ask yourself a question. Do you know the, if you're sitting over there, do you know the people over there? And if you're over here, do you know the people over there? And if you're down here, do you know the people up there? You cannot love the people in the body if you don't know them. Now, I'm under no false uh, concepts here that you're going to know every single person in this body of believers intimately. I know that's not going to happen. But here's the question. Are you trying to get to know any of them? That's the question. Spend time together. Here's another radical thought. If you're in the habit of getting up and leaving when church is over, come to the welcome room. If it's hard for you to stand, there's chairs over there. You can go over there and grab a chair. You know, in fact, I do this at weddings or those kind of gatherings. Sometimes I'll just sit in a chair and then people walk by and I can talk to everybody that walks by. Stick around. Stick your hand out. Say, hi, I'm Dave. We haven't met yet. I'll even give you an easier out. You can say, well, you know, I know this is kind of embarrassing for both of us, but you know, Pastor Dave was really whipping us today. So, hi, my name's Dave. You know, good to meet you there, buddy. Do whatever you have to do, because if you are not loving the body of Christ, you're not living for the Lord. And you're not mature. And it's a burden put on each one of us. Now, if you go home from this sermon and say, that's right, then people at that church need to be loving me more. (laughs) You have really missed the point. 
Spend time together. In your bulletin, there is a page that talks about groups that are smaller groups. I understand that once a church surpasses the magic number 40, that you can't know everybody in the church very well. But you can be connected more deeply with a group of people. And there are some groups that are ongoing that I've put on that sheet of paper. And there are some groups that, that are in the planning stages that will launch very shortly. And I would love for you to fill that out and by faith say, Okay, God, I'm going to stretch out a little bit here. I'll get involved in one of these groups. Or maybe you have a question about one that's existing. And you would ask that. And it would give you a way to spend time together. Do you know what I've found? That most Christians are really not that scary. And if you spend some time with them, you'll find out some commonalities. We had a, we had a thing in Tuckwilla called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And we, you would sign up to be a host or a guest, and nobody ever knew till the last day who was coming. We told them how many, but you know, on the very first time we did that, the, the Norrises found out they were related to the people they had dinner with. They like had a common grandfather or grandfather's brother, one of those things up in Cedar Woolley. You know, they're all related in Cedar Woolley, you know. <laughs> but here they've been sitting in church with these people. They didn't even know they were a moderately close relation. You never know what you're going to find out. You never know what common interest you might have. Spend time together. Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And that's not just this organized meeting. It's much more than that. Number two, give care on purpose. Give care on purpose. The scripture says we should bear one another's burdens. How can you do that? Let me give you a real simple way you could do that. You could start doing that. When you come to church and you sit down and in your different pew and you meet somebody and say, you know, what's the Lord been doing in your life? Or, or is there anything I could pray for you? I, I, you know, I don't pray for everybody in the church, but I want to pray for you. Could, would, is there a request that you'd have? I heard this week about somebody, they agreed together to pray about something in each other's lives. And when they came to church, they said, how's it going with this? And how's it going with this? And they, they're caring for each other. That's the kind of thing. It's very simple to do. You may not be able to come over and, you know, move them from one house to another. You may not physically be able to do that, but you can pray for them. You can talk to somebody and say, Let, can I care for you? Can I help you? When you find out about a need, you can pray at the, at, the, at the very beginning of things, and then maybe you can do something beyond that. Care, given on purpose. And then number three, truth communicated lovingly. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, and he says, when I came to you, I didn't just preach the gospel, but I gave you my soul and my example. What's it mean to give your soul to somebody? It means you really are just, you're not just saying, well, you know, the Bible says da-da-da-da-da, but it, you're giving them God's truth in that context of relationship and love and care. Truth communicated lovingly. I'm so thankful that our church is not like the Corinthian church. I'm not preaching this sermon today because I think we are like them. I think we're like the Thessalonian church. They did serve the Lord. They did love one another. They did have a good example. But what did Paul say to them about their love? He said, now do it more and more. 
I think we are a friendly church. I think we try to be that. But I want to challenge you today, coming all the way back to Helen Steele and saying, look at the investment she is making in the body of Christ. Now I understand we're supporting her as a missionary and she has perhaps more time than some of you to give and she doesn't have her family living with her and so she has more time to give, but she's giving far more than 40 or 50 hours. She said in a previous email to me that she usually only sleeps about five hours a night and it's not because she's up watching TV late. It's because she's just totally given her soul to the students at that Bible Institute. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to step up farther, greater, bigger, more 